0: All good? All right. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, we're going to try and make this uh, weekly or bi-weekly thing. We're not quite sure yet. Uh, we'll see how today goes. We have, uh, we're have we going to try and do three questions each week that you guys submit to try and, ask, uh, try and answer them for you. We're concerned more with clinical questions. We want to answer questions from uh, therapists, uh, physicians, uh, chiropractors, ATs, that sort of thing. Please don't send in your personal questions about your personal uh, experiences. Um, we're not here to give necessarily clinical advice uh, on individual cases, but keep your questions coming. keep sending them in, and we'll try to get to them. We're only going to do three per week. so if we don't get to your question today, uh, apologies, and uh, we will try to answer it at some point in the future. So we have three questions today. The first one is from Hunter My GSP and uh, I believe it's a she, asks, can you explain neurofatigue and what exactly is happening in the brain when things get confusing or slowed down in the brain? So this question right here is interesting. We just kind of covered a little bit about this in the webinar. We don't understand neurofatigue fatigue 100%, but one of the leading theories right now is regarding a, um, uh, there's multiple networks in the brain. so certain things inside your brain when you're when you're concerned with, um, you know, performing a task. If you have a task at hand, that's done by a network inside your brain called the executive network. And when you're just kind of daydreaming, not really doing much, um, the dominant network in your brain uh, is called the default mode network. And so what usually happens in a normal person's brain is that the default mode network is activated most of the time when you're just kind of going about your day. But when you have a task at hand, if you're going to do a math test or if you had to do something specifically, you would default over or so you'd switch over to the executive network. So moving between those two networks is what you need uh, to be able to do in order to have cognitive thought processing and in order to minimize the amount of activity in your brain when we look at people that have high stress, when we look at people that have anxiety, and when we look at people that have concussion or persistent concussion symptoms, what we find when we put them into fMRI scanners is that both default mode network and executive network are activated at the same time. So what this does is a few things. One, it creates a more difficult situation in when you're trying to perform a task, your default mode network is taking over. So you're not able to um, move between the networks necessarily. You have both activated at the same time. So this becomes confusing uh, for the individual and they can't concentrate appropriately. But also what it does is because you're activating more areas of your brain, you're actually burning more energy and you become more fatigued as a result. So that's kind of the leading theory right now on neurofatigue. Now, the question is how can we then change that? Is there a way in which we can change that and get people, people better at using their executive network and turning off their default mode network when they have a task at hand so that they're not doubling up their brain power and therefore going through neurofatigue? That's a whole other question. Okay? So I hope that answers your question. Uh, The next one is, I saw that CCMI has a, and that's complete concussion management, has a 10-day return to learn slash work slash play protocol. Right now, we use a five-day return to sport protocol only for our athletes. Do you feel like a five-day protocol is adequate for our situation uh, considering we cannot make educational accommodations for patients? I'm not quite sure what the educational accommodation for patients part means, but We have a 10 day protocol, not even a 10 day protocol, we have a 10 step protocol. And I think that's a huge distinction to make. We're not concerned with the number of days necessarily in your protocol, we're concerned with the number of steps. So let's change five steps, or five days to five steps. Is that adequate? According to the international consensus statement, the return to play process is a six step return to play. If you look at the return to learn process, it's a four step return to learn. And if also when you're dealing with adolescents, the recommendation from Davis uh, in 2017, which was a systematic review that kind of informed the Berlin consensus document, they said that return to learn should be completed before return to play is initiated. So what you end up with is a four-step return to learn and a six-step return to play and what you get is a 10-step protocol and so that's all we've done in our protocol is put the return to learn in front of the return to play uh, just to put more steps into the process and the reason that we've done that and the reason that other people are calling for that is that just relying on symptoms for an individual is is actually inadequate the brain takes longer to recover from a metabolic or functional standpoint than it does for the symptoms to go away so just because the symptoms have gone away and you've passed a five-step protocol, which you could theoretically get done in five days, that is definitely inadequate because the, this, the research on this has shown that the human brain takes between three to six weeks to recover appropriately. So when you're just relying on getting through your five-day step, yes, that is definitely inadequate Uh, you should be adding more steps into the process and you should also be trying to add some objectivity to it such as physical exertion testing uh, baseline pre and post injury testing in order to try and truly understand when somebody's metabolic recovery time has elapsed okay third question I have two elderly patients that all have dizziness uh, and fatigue as their main symptom Due to this population being super rigid into extension, how can I test for BPPV? So BPPV is benign paroxysmal positional vertigo, and what it is is crystals inside the utricle of the ear get dislodged and come into the semicircular canals, and they rest on hair cells, which gives the person the perception that they're spinning. So the world will start start spinning around them, and they'll get vertigo. And this is often when people are lying in a supine position when they're on their back because it'll activate the posterior canals, and they'll start to have that vertigo sensation. There's also horizontal canal BPVV when they're laying on their side. So really it depends. When you're trying to get the person into your Dix Hall Pike, uh, which is the position for looking at posterior canal BPVV, they have to have kind of uh, 45 degrees rotation and you know 30 degrees or so of extension you can actually achieve this um, when we learned this we had their head off the table and um, And they had to go into quite a bit of extension. But you actually don't need that. You can actually just do a little head tilt and achieve 30 degrees of extension. The other option is if you have access to some sort of tilting table mechanism, you can tilt the whole body up. So if they are that rigid and unable to achieve uh, that level of extension, which is pretty minimal, um, to be honest. But if you can't do that, find some way to try and maybe just tilt their whole body up so that their head and neck can remain in a neutral position. And as long as you get that 45 degrees rotation – Uh, You should be able to access those posterior canals. The other thing is that can be done easily is try to see if it's a horizontal canal. Um, 85% or so of cases are going to be in posterior canal, BBV anyway, but about 10% are horizontal canal. So this is the next most common. So if it's a horizontal canal and you say that uh, they're an elderly population, I believe in the original question you said that they were rolling around in bed and that's where they were feeling it. So just because they're not going into that extension when they're in bed tells me that it's likely a horizontal canal, or at least it it could be a horizontal canal. So to test that, um, it's the barbecue roll or the supine roll technique. Uh, In the videos that I have on my Instagram page at Concussion Doc, I show them supine and I turn their head uh, 90 degrees or 45 degrees or so, uh, as much as I can get anyway in terms of rotation, directly to the side. Uh, Elderly person might not have that much rotation, so what you can do to test it, and I did this actually yesterday with somebody, I just lay them on their side. So just get them to lay on their shoulder, put a pillow under their head so their head stays neutral, and see if that invokes that downward beating nystagmus, what you're looking for. Or it could be upward beating, depending on if it's apogeotropic or geotropic. Um, but you can that one you can test without having extension. If that doesn't work and you don't elicit anything, try to see if you, there's any way you can get them into, at least just a focal little bit of extension. And if that doesn't work, try to see if you can get access to some sort of tilting mechanism to, uh, to test them to keep their whole body um, in a rigid plane. So, thank you everyone for your questions. Like I said, we're going to try and do this on a weekly basis to try and answer all the questions that come in. Uh, we're really dedicated to helping healthcare professionals assist those with concussion injuries. And um, so, thank you for your questions. Keep, keep them coming, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks, guys.